Good day. This is Shane Hasty for the InfoQ Culture Podcast. I'm here at QCon 2017 with Dan Craig. Dan, you gave part of the opening keynote and you flew around a model of Spaceship One, but you told us the story of working on the the composites for Spaceship One. Did I get that right? Uh, yes, I was the lead structural analyst for Spaceship One. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd been with Scaled for about 14 years by then, so I'd seen a lot of composite structure. And so when when we chose to build Spaceship One, I was um, I was chosen to be part of that team. You're a structural analyst. Uh, what does a structural analyst do? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. The way scale composites would work in the past typically is I get a design from a designer, and then I'll analyze it and and determine if it's if it's strong enough to take the loads that, that I get. I don't like to go back and say it's not going to work, so I try to come up with my own solution and say, well, if you do this or add some plies here or, or add some structure here, then, then I, it will work. Not often do I get to do design and analysis, but uh, but but I'm, I think I'm a pretty good designer as well. This sounds remarkably like a software engineer getting a design from an architect and saying, yeah, great idea, but this won't work. Oh, yeah, that's a great similarity. So tell us, a, if, if you don't mind, a little bit about the story of Spaceship One. Oh, there's certain designs that Bert has always had percolating in the back of his mind. You know, whether it's the world's largest wingspan airplane, which they're working on right now, or whether it's building a spaceship or electric airplanes or supersonic. I mean, he's, he's, he's always thinking about different ideas. So the spaceship is something that just kind of came to, to the top. Bert decided it was time that he thought we could build the spaceship, and especially with the uh, X Prize that, that was being made public. He, said, he thought it was a great opportunity to, to go after Spaceship One and win the X Prize. And he felt he had all the t- technical solutions that enabled that. So all he had to do was find funding. And he went to uh, Paul Allen and almost without hesitation, Paul Allen said, sure, um, I trust you, you your, your reputation, let's, let's, let's do it. Now, there was something pretty unique about the design of, the, of that plane. You, you called it the feather and it, it almost folded the, the, the plane in half. Right. The last technical hurdle for Bert on the Spaceship One design was how to re-enter from space safely. The Space Shuttle and the X-15 back in the 60s are both winged aircraft types that have to re-enter from space and they have to hit the atmosphere just at the right pitch angle or angle of attack. And if they don't, then the loads could get too high or they'll come in at the wrong place. And if the loads are too high, it could break apart. That happened with one of the X-15s back in the 60s. So Bert was, well, Bert worked at Edwards Air Force Base in the 60s when Mike Adams was killed in that X-15. So he's very, very conscious of that problem. So when Bert finally figured out how to re-enter Spaceship One from space by, in, in essence, folding it in half, he felt he, he solved the last technical problem. And folding it in half uh, does two things. It makes it as stable as like a badminton shuttlecock. It just naturally orients itself to the right, uh, to a safe attitude for re-entry. So you could be upside down, sideways. As Bert says, says the pilot could be eating his lunch and not really care. Just it'll naturally right itself so it's a very passive system. And the second thing, the feather, which again folds the airplane in half in essence, <laughs> it creates a very high drag configuration for immediate uh, deceleration. So you don't end up coming in too too quickly. It'll start slowing you down right away as you start hitting air molecules on the, on the reentry. 
Now, one of the things that really struck me listening to your your talk this morning was the analogies with software engineering. One of the key things was what's the minimum that will work? And we talk about the minimum viable product. And you spoke about a whole lot of things that didn't get included in Spaceship One. What are some of those? (laughs) Well, I mean, when you think of Spaceship, you think uh, complexity. And when we took on that program, it was already going to be challenging enough. So we don't need to add on other complexities where you just minimize, like really question everything that you might normally think is you'd consider. But Bert, has, Bert just has a way of, of like, do we need a front wheel? Well, maybe not because we're only landing, we're not taking off. So you can use a nose skid you know, for landing. It's, Bert's really good at asking real fundamental questions that most people, you know, he wouldn't think to ask. <laughs> like, for example, I even questioned whether or not the pilot had active heating or cooling because He's in space, right? And space is cold, and and so I, <laughs> I emailed uh, Mike Melville, the pilot, this this morning or yesterday, last night actually, and I didn't get an immediate response, so I emailed Bert Rutan, <laughs> and then Bert answered, and then I emailed the the, the chief engineer on the project just to, to confirm that what I was saying was correct, and they they all eventually, well, Mike Melville answered this morning, the uh, astronaut, he answered my email and said uh, yes that there was no active heating or cooling for Spaceship One. <laughs> Because once you're dropped from the mothership, it's, it's only six and a half minutes up and, and back. And in essence, they're in a, um, like a like a thermos bottle. It's well insulated, and even the windows are double paned. So it's a real quick flight. And they, they said it, it did get cold, but just a few extra layers was enough to keep them warm. <laughs> the other thing that really, again, struck me is similar to the software engineering models that we use was you did things in short iterations and and incrementally. So you started off with the mothership and then got that. That had the same configuration as Spaceship One? Yes. For Bert to be able to sell his team that we're going to actually build a spaceship, that that took a pretty hard sell since all our experience had been with subsonic airplanes, nothing that goes Mach 3 or three times the speed of sound. So he had to make a good sell. and the way he did that was by incrementally laying out each one of the steps. And the most brilliant step was probably the first step where, you, where the mothership is built as similarly to the uh, spaceship as possible. Because uh, it's, it's no coincidence that the cockpit of the, of the mothership looks just like the spaceship because it's made from the same mold, same materials, same windows. And a lot of the systems, systems were re- replicated also. So every time they flew the mothership, they're exercising the, the structure, the, the systems as a quick way to troubleshoot if there's going to be any, any problems. So the, the incremental nature. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. So, so then once, yeah, once we had the, the mothership, the spaceship, it, it was extremely clever how you, you could take little tiny steps, like first it's a captive carry where the mothership's carrying the spaceship. If that goes well, because you have two airplanes in a close proximity of each other, so you don't quite know what their aerodynamics are going to be. So then the next step is, of course, drop the spaceship at lightweight because it has no propellant. See how that, how that handles. And, but if you contrast that with another rocket system that takes off vertically, you know, like what Jeff Bezos is doing, Blue Origin, or, you know, it's just like you're kind of committed. You know, once you blast out, I mean, you could be unmanned, but you're, you're pretty committed to expect a lot of things to go right, you know, like on the first time. You can't, it's hard to do an increment test. I mean, he kind of has, but not to, to the same level of small increments that, that we were able to do. He made it sound too easy, actually, almost, because it, you could easily easily visualize each step occurring. I mean, it, it, was, it just made it fun. Aside from Spaceship One, which was 14 years ago now? Yes, almost 14. 
and it's hanging in the Smithsonian, so that won't be flying again. Right. You did say that your passion now is flying cars, and you've got some pretty strong opinions. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, you know, it's one of those seductive, elusive dreams that, that have been, you know, that many inventors have uh, pursued. And that's one of the reasons I joined Skilled Composites almost 30 years ago was to build a flying car, because I can't think of a better company you know, that does you know, small aircraft and prototypes where you could pursue that kind of dream. So I've been studying the problem for a long time. And the typical argument you hear is, well, the compromise is too great. You'll have a bad car, you have a bad airplane, so it's not worth, worth the pursuit. And I counter with, well, how can you say that if you haven't exhausted all possibilities? You know, I mean, there's always going to be some, some compromise. So I've been working on this problem for a long time, and I've followed closely what other people have done. My definition of a flying car is one that you can drive on the freeway and drive to the store and drive to an airport and then take off and fly to your next destination. What we're seeing in the press lately that's called flying cars are really electric helicopters. And they're like electric helicopters that are compound helicopters, sometimes with wings. And there's no way that they're gonna be able to drive to the store. Yet they're called, you know, flying cars. I mean, I, I just looked up the definition of car. It's this road vehicle moving on wheels. These guys, they don't move on wheels. <laughs> you know, they're just electric helicopters and yet, Often they have small rotor diameters that aren't aren't efficient. The efficiency I think varies by the by the by the square of the the, the rotor diameter. So basically, if you take like a Robinson R22 and make it electric, that's going to be more efficient than what they're working on. So it drives me crazy a little bit that they're called flying cars. They're not. They're just compound electric helicopters. What I'm proposing and I'm working on right now is is a flying car, or more technically, a rotable airplane, because my the design is biased towards a good airplane and not, and not as good a car because I plan to be flying mostly, not driving. The design is able to drive to the store, it's able to drive on the freeway, it can fly a thousand miles at 180 miles an hour, it can carry two people, and it can fit in the garage. <laughs> and, and airplanes are inherently pretty darn big, yeah. and that was, that's quite a design challenge to make it a two-place rotable airplane that can fit in a, in a garage. So my, my length is 16 and a half feet. Or, um, you know, scale composites where I work, it attracts a lot of interesting people, celebrities like uh, uh, Neil Armstrong and Gordon Cooper. And one day, John DeLorean came through to visit Scaled, and Bert Rutan introduced me as, meet Dan Craig, he's building a flying car. And the first thing John DeLorean said was, well, the problem with flying cars is they don't fit in a garage. And I was so impressed that he knew exactly that's that's the main problem. <laughs> that, that, that is, that's the huge challenge to get them to fit in the darn garage. And I said, yes, that's true, but mine does. <laughs> but no, that's a, that's a big, I mean, typically the flying cars that are trying to make the market now are 19 and a half feet long. That's kind of stretching it. Mine's 16 and a half. That's a big garage. Oh, it's a big garage. You're right. <laughs> You're right. So so the ones on, that, that are trying to head to market now, Aeromobile out of Europe, and that's, that's actually a really pretty design but they're asking over a million dollars, you know? And I maintain that that a flying car shouldn't be any more complex or much more complex or much more expensive than than your home-built airplane. And that's a whole nother culture out there, the guys that build their own airplanes. And some are, are fairly complex, you know, but they, they're able to afford to build them, uh, maybe for 150,000 or 200. I mean, if a flying car costs a million dollars, there's something wrong with it, in, in my opinion. You know, I've studied this problem for a long time and I've followed other people's designs. And there's basically three great debates among the, the flying car enthusiasts, I won't call them nuts, enthusiasts, 
<laughs> the one debate that not many people can agree on, it seems like, is three wheels or four wheels. And I'm going with a three wheel design. I think it just makes more sense technically. And if it's three wheels, it has to have two wheels in the front, one in the back. I don't believe in the reverse. And besides that, generally, the, well, the, the Department of Motor Vehicles considers a three-wheeler a motorcycle, and so it makes everything easier anyway. So I believe it should be a three-wheeler. At least that's what I'm working on. Second great debate is, do you take the wings with you, or do you leave them behind at the airport? And I've always maintained, if you're clever enough, you take them with you. Uh, the argument is, well, leave them behind at the airport because they tend to be more fragile, and you want them protected and not not get road rash or, or something. Yeah, that's kind of valid, but I mean, you'll just lay your, wing, lay, lay your wings you'll, laying on the ramp at the airport. I mean, where do you put them? <laughs> I don't know where to put them on an airport. You know, so I'd like to take them with me, and especially if you're, if you're um, driving to your home and keeping it in your garage, you know, or driving through bad weather. You, know, you land, drive through bad weather, take off on the other side, then you pretty much need to take the wings with you. And the, the last great debate that people have trouble agreeing on, a lot of trouble agreeing on actually, is a two engines or one engine. And for a long time, I was trying to use just one engine to drive both wheels and the propeller. But when I was sizing the gear that was required to drive that one wheel, it was adding up to like 100, 120 pounds, 150 pounds extra hardware, or however you do it, whether it's electric motors or hydraulic pumps or mechanical, it was, it was still substantial weight. So I finally decided, well, you know, to drive on the road, you can use 50 horse, it's a, it's a lightweight car because it has to fly. So 50 horse is not unreasonable. So, and you can get 50 horse, you know, motorcycle you know, tra transmissions and drives. And so I, I finally decided um, it's gotta be two engines. <laughs> so by using two engines, if you're using like a motorcycle engine for, for, for to drive one of your wheels or, or whatever, it's already a, a road certified, you know, smog approved uh, engine. So there, there won't be much problems with getting that probably approved, uh, I expect. So that's one advantage. Also, I'm a firm believer, and for the aircraft side of it, it needs to be an aircraft engine and not one that's like a Chevy V8 or something that some guys are trying to use or some kind of modified Subaru engine. I want an aircraft engine where I'm going to get, you know, warnings from the FAA that there's something wrong with my engine, like they, like they send out to aircraft owners. Because I want to know if there's something wrong with it, you know. You're not going to get that with a, with a Subaru or whatever these other guys are trying to use. Plus, another reason I wanted to, to use two engines is is if I'm, if I'm trying to use my aircraft engine to drive a wheel in LA traffic and it's idling and it's air-cooled and, and the engine costs, you know, $50,000 new and, and it's like, I don't want to use an expensive engine that's idling. You know, I, I, I'd rather use a, a cheaper engine for the back. And, and then another problem is often pilots will be, I, I hear the story over the years where pilots is flying across country and he has a problem with his engine, so he has to land at an airport that's not his home airport. Then he has to go figure out how to get the airplane back or, or, how, or have a mechanic fix it remotely. Or in my case, you just drive home, you know? <laughs> so it's a design I've been working on for a long time. I'm pretty well along on it. I'm not keeping a secret. I just haven't bothered trying to you know, advertise it because it's self-funded right now. I think I can have it driving in a year and then flying a year after that. So I'm, I'm making very good progress. So in two years' time, we'll be able to buy the, the Dan Craig flying car. Oh, well, okay, okay. Let's back up there. <laughs> my philosophical approach is I just want one for myself. I, I just want one for the adventure. I'm not worrying about marketing it or mass producing it. I just want one for, for me, just for 
you know, and one of the adventures, I'd like to pack it up like a, fold it up like a, like a car, because that's what it is. And because and they ship it to Hawaii, because they ship cars back and forth all the time. That's one of my, my fantasies, Sh- you know, ship it to Hawaii. Every island has an, air- has an airport and just fly from island to island. And um, But just, just for me to have the adventure, and then if other people are interested, we'll, we'll talk, but I don't really care about marketing at this, this point. I guess another thing, philosophically, it's kind of like a three-place airplane, even though it carries two people. And the weight of the third person is the compromise that makes it rotable. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's one way one way I, I look at the design. So it's not going to be a family wagon. Well, it carries two people. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you can make it a two plus one. I don't know. You know but it's, uh, I can't wait for the adventure of just driving it down the road and, and uh, drive, well, the, the plan is to drive it for a while and get used to the stairs and people trying to drive, run me off the road while they're taking pictures or whatever. <laughs> and then um, have them get used to it. And then, uh, and the wings are modular by nature because they have to unplug and plug in. So then I can start working on the wings once I really understand where the fuselage balances out and how much it's gonna, gonna weigh. But I guess one thing I'll say too, te- technically, I'm not really inventing anything new. This is a real simple design intentionally, I think, it happens to, to look pretty nice, but that's not the point. There's a lot of sexy designs out there that look very, very sexy, but but pr- practically they're, they're difficult. Uh, but I think they're compromising for good looks for, for being technically easy. <laughs> so I'm intentionally ignoring how it looks, aesthetics, even though I think it looks nice, but aesthetics for just something that, that I can build. Otherwise, I'm never going to get it done. And so the basic design I'll describe is it's a firewall forward. It's just like an airplane like um, like a Cessna uh, so that's that's well understood technology the wings plug in and, and, re- and are removed similar to a, a sailplane the gliders that, that have to plug in and unplug their wings all the time and the general configuration is a tandem wing with one wing at one end of the airplane and the other wing at the other end of the airplane so they they fold towards each other so there's not one big un- unwieldy wing but the plug-in and in, in unplug is, is you know well understood driving um, one of the wheels with the motorcycle engine and transmission. I mean, that's easy. And that's, that's behind, that's, that, that's the, the rear wheel that's behind the, the pilot and passengers. That's, I mean, that's well understood technology. So I'm, I'm just recombining what's well understood. But I have to admit, the most difficult part of the design is, is landing here because it's a basically a tail dragger airplane that has front wheels that steer, which is very unusual. Though there is one flying car in, this, in the Smithsonian that does that, and I built a, a 20% radio-controlled model that does that, and it, it, and it seems it handles just fine. So that's unusual. And the main landing gear has to swing to a different position for for driving, and also has to steer in that position. So technically, that's the most challenging part of the design. So it's just it's just the landing gear, but everything else is almost embarrassingly easy. And and the other thing I. The place where I work, the scale composites that's built over 40 some airframes that are prototypes. And I almost feel obligated that I have to try this because you can't work for a, a better company with, with those kind of resources. I have you know guys like Bert Rutan and John Ronks, a famous aerodynamicist that are, are, are helping me with their advice. I mean, you can't ask for a better world. So I, I feel like I have to do this. <laughs> <laughs> and to come back to my analogy to software, it sounds like you're using design patterns, following techniques that are, that are proven and, and work, and then just doing the, 
the customization on the bits that are unique. Yes, exactly. It's, it's just recombining what's already well understood and, and safe and, and, and known. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that, but that's where a lot of innovation happens, is yes. bringing together those existing good ideas. Yes. Dan, hopefully, uh, in a couple of years' time, we'll get back together and you can take me for a ride. Oh, I'd love to. <laughs> so thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much.